What a blessed morning it is to be able to assemble and to gather for the reason that we have. As Brother Gary mentioned earlier, we're blessed with many who've come our way, not only visitors, but many of our number who've been ill are back with us today, and we're so happy and thankful for all of those good pieces of uh, occurrences in the lives of individuals. But of course, as we're gathered this morning, we do so for the purpose of doing that which is pleasing and right in the sight of God, and we're thankful for His Word that tells us what those things are. You may have noticed already, according to the bulletin, that our lesson today has this title. You'll see it on the wall to my left, Success and Failure. And I hope that as you have your Bible with you, we'll be looking at a number of verses in just a moment having to do with those two words. Perhaps as a way to give some initial thought to that, here are some introductory comments, some of which I think you'll find very, very interesting indeed. First of all, isn't it true that we have every right to be happy and thankful and glad as those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb, those who enjoy the precious goodness of the blessing of God? And I know many of us, as we think about that, are so honored to be in that position. But you'll notice starting in the middle of that slide, success and failure are topics that are extremely intriguing. In fact, they're almost acute, aren't they? In that they are almost indirectly before us all the time. There are those who are young and they of course battle the perception of what is it to be successful because they don't want to be failure. Nobody does. But may I suggest that even those of us who are somewhat older, it is still the case that we wrestle in an almost indirect way with this concept because we too don't want to be cast a failure. I suppose it's reasonable to say nobody wants to be labeled as a failure. Nobody wants to be placed in a category of having come up so exceedingly short. And yet the Bible has so much to say about this. For the next few moments this morning, why don't you and I study again the topics of success and failure, not only rehearsing the th natures of these verses, but using it to extract some principles to extract some applications that no doubt should be very transforming to our lives. As we do that, why don't we use this next slide, one of which will basically set an observation. You'll notice as you begin to look at that slide, isn't it true that as cultures change, as society of course makes its developments and its various and sundry changes throughout time, it's fair to say that in the past, things were really different than what they are today. If you could turn back the clock a hundred years, none of us were alive a hundred years ago, but maybe you have spoken with your grandparents who were, maybe you've spoken with your great-grandparents who were, maybe you've heard them detail rather clearly what it was like to live back in a time like that. Well, some of the observations that perhaps you've heard them say and maybe some of the features you've read about in details of those ancient days, especially in the rural parts of our country, might lead you to those opening remarks. In the past, I would submit that likely success and failure, at least in matters of this earth, were judged very differently than what they are today. Back at that time, you might appreciate the hardness and the demanding nature that often went with a rural or agricultural kind of life. You had to work all the time just to put enough food on the table for yourself and your family. 
And as you did that, of course, you appreciated success, by and large, was judged on the virtue of whether or not you had enough to eat and whether you had a place warmly to stay in the winter. As long as that was met, you likely considered yourself rather successful. But may I say, as you look at that next observation, in this present time, it seems so very different, doesn't it? We have been so richly blessed by God, often in terms of our ongoing day-to-day lives. Those kinds of things aren't the judge of success any longer. Now everybody, it seems, or nearly everybody, has those features and blessings of life. And so, so often, isn't it true, success is judged on the basis of how nice a house do I have? How many cars do I own? Do my children have to work or not? How many vacations a year am I able to take? And we can each see the point. Maybe you know of someone who finds themselves in a position of wrestling with considerations along that line. You'll notice as you come near the bottom, isn't it true that in that regard at least, success is often judged on the basis of luxuries, not necessities. It's judged on the basis of how many of the finer things do I have, not do I have the basic matters needed for existence in the flesh. Surely that last comment on the slide then is one to which we'll come. And so if that be true, that this observation we've made, then it attaches success almost indirectly to how nice a job do I have? Do I make enough? If not, someone else may deem me unsuccessful. Or what about the other features of what I am able to purchase by virtue of that? I say all of that to say that the Bible has some very strong warnings for all of us so that we don't fall into a trap like this. The Bible does not anywhere judge success based on that. Anywhere. But rather, it in fact labels a successful matter in such a direct and such a profound consideration. And it is to that that we'll turn our attention for the rest of the lesson today. Let me also begin then by asking, are you successful? Am I successful? Or, on the other hand, are you a failure in the sight of God? We aren't interested in what men may say. We really couldn't care less. What we're interested in is, according to the Bible, are you and I successful? The next slide will begin us a journey. As we journey through some of the features of this consideration, let me begin this opening set of comments, not in a way that's intended to be negative, but just as intended to be factual. One of the things you and I know about our life in the flesh, so overwhelmingly set forth for us in the Word of God, is this, our life in the flesh is but brief. It is but brief. We may enjoy our sojourn in this flesh, and there are no doubt many things of this life that are enjoyable. But the fact remains, our sojourn in the flesh is not permanent. Why don't we begin in Job 7, verse 6, where that ancient man who himself was so richly blessed and then had it taken from him, and in verse, chapter 7, verse 6, reference is made to the fact that his days, he said, are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. You'll notice in this text in Job, we have in Job 9, 25, yet these two passages that highlight again the brevity in terms of life likened to a post. Both of those occurrences are found on that occasion. 
And they set before us the truth that even Job appreciated himself. This life is not going to last indefinitely in the flesh. To that might well be added the text in Job 14.1 where Job in a rather dramatic way said, Man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. It's true, isn't it, that life does bring its challenges, it brings its difficulties. It just doesn't always go as smoothly as it would go if we had our choice in the matter. But it might well be in light of that we notice in Psalm 39.5 how one more time the psalmist, different speaker totally, affirmed one more time that again life so swift likened into a handbreadth. Now a handbreadth is not a long distance of measure. There are many measures far longer than it. Everything from foot to yard to mile and so on, but just a handbreadth. Finally, in James chapter 4, in verses 13 and following, reference is made there to the likening of your life and mine in the flesh to a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. All of those thoughts should remind us that those previous observations made concerning success all link to things that we're going to experience only for a little while. And so the next observation is this one. Beyond death, there's not the slightest indication in Scripture that these physical matters of money or luxuries or fineries will have any matters of difference in a realistic way to make. In Zephaniah 1.18, wasn't it true the children of Israel at that time did enjoy a great deal of physical blessing? money and things like that, but yet God through the prophet rather powerfully asserted that silver and gold will be no benefit in the day of the Lord. Now Zephaniah told the people that day that. What if we come to the New Testament and ask similar things about passages such as Matthew 6? In the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, our Savior unforgettably said, "...lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth." Where moth and rust doth corrupt, or thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Maybe in the final analysis to that, perhaps we could allow the Apostle John in Revelation 18 to say this. In verse 17 of that chapter, one more time in the midst of a rather strongly notable, prosperous Roman Empire. Remember, Rome was the ruling empire of the day. Luxurious, wealthy, powerful, mighty. And yet, in regard to that powerful empire, wasn't it true that God, through the man known as John, revealed this truth? Your riches are corrupted. They're not going to save you in the day of the Lord's judgment. Now what was true then is still, of course, so vitally true. It might well be in light of those things we come to this. It is regarded in the Word of God a foolish thing to devote the exclusive pursuit of life to these matters in the flesh. These matters the world so awful would detail as intricate and needful for success. The Bible says you're a fool to only pursue that. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 and following, as Paul came near the close of that first letter to Timothy, 
Wasn't it true that he rather interesting and also rather directly said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment therewith, let us be content. Paul was teaching a valiant lesson about contentment, wasn't he? A circumstance by which one understands how sweet it is to appreciate we didn't bring anything into the world and we are not able to take it with us. And therefore, while we're here, let godliness be the primary concern. Let righteousness be the primary goal. No wonder it is in light of that. In 2 Peter 3.11, as Peter had just argued so strongly in motivating consideration about why we should be so intrigued with spiritual growth, because the Lord's coming back. And this is what he said. Seeing then that all these things should be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Isn't that a probing question? All these things we see, they shall not survive that second coming of Christ. They're going to be destroyed. Why then do we give all of our attention and time, all of our effort and motivation for the pursuit of those things that won't last? It's still a good question, isn't it? So far as you and I have, have highlighted all those things, it brings us full circle to the observation of the Master. Our Savior, of course, left heaven in all of its splendor. All the glory that the Master had there, John 17, 4, He left behind Him to come to this place. And as He did, He tabernacled in the flesh for a period of time. And in the midst of His time in the flesh, He said this, in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, that presentation there in the heart of the book of Mark, Jesus said, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He prefaced that by saying, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Those questions are stunning. And they're very thought-provoking, aren't they? The lesson so far has been a challenge to each of us, reminding us of these things like life's brevity, the features that have at least pondered in our heart and mind, the characteristic of what then is success. At this point, let's use the rest of the lesson to ask, according to this book, let's let God define success. Now, we're going to do that, or at least I'm going to approach it in the following way. Let's pick a number of verses where success and prosperity are directly mentioned and give some thought to the circumstances described in those moments. And let's see what success was. And once we're finished, then we'll do the same thing with the word failure or the phrase not prosperous. And let's see what then failure meant. Let's begin that journey as you can see at the bottom of this slide. First of all, would you consider with me for a moment the days of Joseph? As the book of Genesis sets the life and times of Joseph before us, we remember he was that favorite son of Jacob. And yet the time came that his brothers were so much in hatred against him, so filled with ill will toward him that they sold him. They sold him. It was their hope apparently to never see him again. That's detailed for us in Genesis chapters 37 and following. 
Out of that circumstance, though, may I ask you to consider what did befall him as we arrive at chapter 39. You remember he did end up in Egypt. However, Potiphar's wife made a false accusation against him, and Joseph ended up in prison. He ended up in what one might think a very uncomfortable place. But yet the text says that he prospered. The text says he prospered. And the reason was because God was with him. And that isn't the only time that statement's made concerning this man named Joseph. As you come to chapter 39, verse 23 later, one more time it was observed the prosperity that he felt not only in that house of Potiphar, but also, of course, in the prison itself. He prospered in prison because God was with him. Now on that occasion, what was it then to, to know and to experience prosperity? It was being in a covenant relationship with God. It was understanding the blessing that one could feel knowing that one was right with one's Maker. Joseph isn't the only one who brings us to consider that point. What about another? Beyond Joseph, could I ask you to consider a general statement that God through Moses made to the children of Israel? In Deuteronomy 29, verse 9, not very long before Moses himself would pass on to the world beyond, he left these final words with the children of Israel. You will know prosperity, he wrote. And he declared, if you're faithful to the Lord's commandments, to His judgments, to His statutes. The particular wording of that verse is very intriguing. Let me ask you to notice it with me. Verse number 9 of Deuteronomy 29. Keep therefore the words of this covenant and do them, that ye may prosper in all that ye do. Isn't that interesting? Here was this aged man Moses, and yet as he addressed the children of Israel, prosperity shall be yours if and only if. You are in fact faithful to that law and you keep those testimonies of God. Next occurrence. Beyond that Deuteronomy 29 passage, we come to the lesson text that was read in our hearing a moment ago. Mike read Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. You and I know now that Moses has passed on. He has died and God buried him. And now a new leader of the people of Israel has been selected it was a man named Joshua. I'm sure each of us have often thought about the position into which Joshua found himself. Moses had been the leader for all those years and he was a highly respected man. How is Joshua going to take over the leadership of this people? He's far younger. He's less experienced. The words of wisdom that God delivered to him were these. Verse 6 of Joshua 1, Be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, 
and then thou shalt have good success. God, what will make Joshua successful? What is it that shall make him prosperous? Observing to do the law and turning neither to the right nor the left from it. You'll notice he didn't say anything about some of those attributes and features that we described at the outset of our lesson this morning. As you ponder this example then of Joshua, why don't we look at another in 1 Kings 2, as well as in 1 Chronicles 22, parallel statements about the instructions that an aged father was giving to his son. Now David was soon to pass on, and yet Solomon was going to be the next king of Israel, particularly in that text in 1 Kings 2 verse 3. May I ask you to notice what David told him. Maybe some of us have been in positions where our parents had reached an advanced age. Or maybe a grandparent had, again, reached a time reasonably close to death. And they want to impart some words of wisdom. I wonder what David told his son. Would you read with me from 1 Kings 2, verse number 3? I'll begin reading in verse 2. I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes and His commandments and His judgments and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself. Solomon, if you want to be successful and prosperous, this is all you need to know. Be apprised of the law of God, His statutes, His commandments, His judgments, and do them. That's it. By now, I think we've each agreed that the examples we've seen so far have highlighted very clearly what biblical success is. To highlight the point, let's look at some additional ones. In 2 Chronicles 26.5, we have the inspired Old Testament record of one of the kings of ancient Judah. His name was Uzziah. Uzziah, of course, came quite a bit after the time that the kingdom was divided. But in his days, we notice that a very telling statement occurred. The text says in verse 5 of that chapter that in the days of Zechariah, who was one of the priests in the days of Uzziah, it says... As long as he followed the things of God, he prospered. May I say to you, that's as long as any of us will ever prosper. As long as we follow the Lord, and if we deviate therefrom, our prosperity will be forfeited too. Consider yet another one. A similar statement was made concerning Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 21, or rather 31. In fact, in the days of Hezekiah, who again had much to be said about him in the goodness of his reign, again it prospered because he sought after the things of God. Maybe one more, and then a general statement after that. That one more I would ask you to notice in Job 36, 11. Wasn't it true that Elihu, one of those friends of Job, ultimately made this statement that only as long as one turns his attention to things of God will there be an experience and an enjoyment of prosperity. Even Elihu understood that truth. Does all of that then sound familiar in light of Psalm chapter 1? 
Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Wasn't it true that those who meditate day and night on the law of the Lord, verse 2, are the very ones who will exist beside rivers of water in verse 3, whose leaf shall bring forth abundantly and plentifully, also verse 3. Success then is rather clearly attached to something different than the world would primarily consider. As you and I come near the close of that slide then, it begs the following question. We have looked time and again at biblical references to characters who themselves had something to tell us about success. What about failure? What about failure? What, does it, what do I need to do or not do to be reckoned a failure? Now again, we know what the world would be quick to tell us. Just don't have a good enough job. Just don't have a nice enough house. Just don't have enough cars. We get the idea. According to the Word of God, what constitutes a failure? Well, one more time. We have a briefer listing, but it's very telling. Let's begin in 2 Chronicles 24. I would invite you to notice as we look with some intensity at the wording provided on that occasion. 2 Chronicles 24, verse number 20. It says, And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people, and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord, that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, He hath also forsaken you. Now the statement is intriguing, isn't it? Here, what is it? The text expressly says ye cannot prosper. Now what motivated or what brought the circumstance such that they weren't able to prosper? Well, the verse that, or rather the statement that preceded it was this. Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord that ye cannot prosper? Failing to prosper was attached directly, wasn't it, to failing to obey God. Failing to be in harmony with Him, failing to do His bidding, and failing to be faithful to Him. That constituted failure. In Psalm 73, verses 12 and following, a description is given about the ungodly who prosper, but did you notice with me the description is of those who only physically prosper? Because at the time of their death, again, barring their faithfulness to the God of heaven, they'd find that those riches would be of no value and they wouldn't avail them. That's why the psalmist made the statement that he did. Why do the ungodly prosper in this life? Aren't you excited to be in a position to prosper not just here, but yea, also hereafter? Following that text in Psalm 73... Maybe it's the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 10, verse 21. Jeremiah had something interesting, very telling to say in regard to the ancient people of Israel. 
Verse number 21 says, For death, I'm sorry, wrong, wrong verse. For the pastors are become brutish and have not sought the Lord, therefore they shall not prosper. Now these individuals of whom God was speaking through Jeremiah, they hadn't sought the Lord, and what was the point? That is to say, what was the consequence? They aren't prospering, and they won't prosper. There it seems you and I have reached a a moment of finality, a moment of serious understanding. I have tried to identify it about the middle of that slide. Let's come full circle and say it like this. So what then does it mean to prosper? What then does it mean to be successful? And therefore, by the same token, what is involved in being a failure? Being successful is this. Being faithful to God and leaving this life to go to heaven. That's it. May we be awfully careful to judge ourselves or others based on merely those physical things before. Now please note, I'm not saying we shouldn't have an interest to some extent in those things because we're told we've got to provide for ourselves and our family, 1 Timothy 5.8. But they mustn't be the exclusive interest and the exclusive motivation of life. If they are, we're a failure. If they are, we have failed. Because on the other hand, the one, that individual who gives his or her attention to the things of God, who walks in harmony with his will, turning neither to the right nor left, those who do the bidding of God by virtue of his judgments and his covenant, they are the ones the Bible says are successful. Because on the other hand, notice what failure is. No matter what else may be said, failure is dying lost and going to hell. It doesn't matter what else has been done of life. You might die a millionaire, even a billionaire. But if you die lost, what has it gained you? You failed. Now these warnings are serious, aren't they? The ancient Roman Empire was known for its materialistic interest, and no doubt throughout the centuries, many other cultures have felt the same forces. And that's true today especially in our country. You'll notice in light of that, this lesson is just intended to remind all of us of what is involved in being a success. And sadly enough, of course, what's the consequence of of being a failure? But to do so from the perspective of the book of God. You'll notice at the bottom... Wasn't it true in Hebrews 11 that those who were of the honor roll of faith, especially there making mention of Abraham, that he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. But Abraham was a rather wealthy man on this earth, wasn't he? Genesis chapters 12 and following. But yet he knew something was better than this. Aren't you reminded of 2 Corinthians 5, 1? in which you and I are told very poetically and very sweetly about the fact that this tabernacle in which we now live is one which we're going to put off at some point because we look for that tabernacle whose builder and whose maker is God. It might well be in light of those things that let's close that slide and look at one final one and the lesson will close this morning. Bible success and Bible failure. 
I know at this point, as we come to this part of the lesson, we're now going to perhaps very personally bring the lesson to each of ourselves. Now, each of us here today, there are various stations in life. Some are adults and some are youth. Some are very young. Some have a steady job and others don't. Some are in other features or attributes of life. Some in this audience are fathers and some are not. Some ladies are mothers and some are not. No matter what the circumstance particularly may well be of life, there is a vital set of principles and lessons that might well be noted. As you and I think for a moment about adults, suppose we each as the men of the congregation, all the gentlemen, just ponder with me for a moment. We understand well that our society often casts upon our shoulders a very serious consideration about success and failure. If you can't work enough to provide that exquisite and luxurious house for your family, you are a failure. Don't ever fall into that trap. Gentlemen, if you as a husband and father are a faithful Christian and your family's the same, you find great joy in the service of the God of heaven, and you've got enough, you're a success. And don't ever let the world lead you to think otherwise. Now, obviously, as we strive to employ our talents and do that which we can in the service of God, God will bless and He will provide. But never let us have this sore and lost self-esteem because we label ourselves a failure only because the world does. When God lifts high the banner of faithfulness in you and your family, your children who are marching toward heaven along with you, aren't you thankful and happy that you had a part to play in rearing them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Mothers, society is also coming to the point of placing rather notable pressure on you. Often with things the way they are, both the man and woman need to work these days, often choose to do so at the very least, and there isn't anything directly wrong with it. But it's easy to fall beneath that trap. I've got to help provide, and my husband and I, we need this nicer house, and we need finer things. We need to be careful. Remember, that's the world's level and definition of success. Is it God's? We found so far today, it surely isn't in the Bible that way. That sweet mother who one more time can consider that you've had a part to play in the encouraging faithfulness in your family. Your husband's faithfulness, your faithfulness, your children's faithfulness. The Word of God is lifted high and pursued lovingly and seriously. You're a success. Those other definitions of the world notwithstanding. You'll notice I simply highlighted those thoughts in that way. and I simply selected the matter of father and mother, but easy applications can be made otherwise. What about young people? We at the Pippin congregation are blessed, of course, with many youngsters from very young into the teenage years and even the early 20s. And as we think about all of them, the pressures, and those of us who are older, we remember it well. You graduate from school or soon to do so. You look forward to that moment and off to college you go. And there you select this particular career path and you apply your talents and capabilities appropriately and you look forward to that set of blessings that will follow. 
almost exclusively in some ways relating to physical things. But along the way, don't ever, ever forget that as blessed as those things can be, they don't define success. They don't. Learn the things you can. Look forward to providing for yourself and family, but don't let that be the sole focus of life. Never let it distract you from the church. Never let it distract you from faithfulness to the Word. Never let it distract you from the features of what's most important, the success that comes with following God in His way. And so, young people, keep those things in mind, even as we who are older listen time and again to God's definition of success. As we close that slide, may I say that it, of course, also has a bearing on that ultimate selection of your mate, the spouse, the one you'll marry. Don't just marry someone for their money because we've learned today that's not God's definition of success. Choose someone that will help you get to heaven and who you can help get there too, that you can walk hand in hand with through life, encouraging, supporting, and living faithfully together for God until death. Those kinds of things no amount of money can replace. No amount of luxuries of life can change because you know you're founded on biblical success. Today we've studied success and failure. The closing slide will only highlight in a very brief way some of what we've seen because it does beg the question of all of us. According to God's definition, am I successful? Are you? Or, according to God's definition, am I a failure? Or are you? If it's the latter, please make things aright and do it very quickly because you want as much of the opportunity to appreciate biblical success as the years of your life can, can allow you to understand. Today, if there's anybody in the audience who at this point is not a faithful servant of the God of heaven, then at this point God would label you a very, very difficult position of a failure. You haven't done what you should. Don't you want to be a success? You can start that journey today if you never have. You can have your sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb. You can, in fact, be set on a course for eternity in heaven as long as, of course, you'll remain faithful thereafter. But that requires today that you believe in Jesus Repent of your sins. Confess His sweet name as the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Upon so doing, Jesus enters you into His church. He puts you in that position. He adds you to it. And inside that blessed body, you can then live faithfully and enjoy the biblical success that comes with faithful serving of the God of heaven. If, however, you have strayed from faithfulness and need to come back to your first love today, what better day could there be than this? Because again, don't you want to be a success? If we could pray to God on your behalf for forgiveness, we'd be honored to do that. If anyone would have either, either of these needs, we would invite you, urge you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.